Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 27th, 2022, and we're talking to Michael Schofield, who's Assistant Professor in the Departments of Neuroscience and Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at the Medical University of South Carolina. Michael's lab studies brain mechanisms of drug-seeking and addiction, and especially interactions between the cortex, the nucleus accumbens, and dopaminergic neurons that innervate both of those structures. And he uses a lot of powerful tools, including intersectional viral vector methods for identifying specific cell types, optogenetic and chemogenetic tools for manipulating neural activity in those identified cells. And he also does some remarkable microscopic work using these same tools and one very cool direction he is taking is in the role of glia, especially astrocytes, in synaptic transmission in the context of drug seeking or drug taking. So hi, Michael, and welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Also with us today is Matt Wannett, one of our UTSA experts on brain mechanisms of drug seeking and other things. Howdy. And a regular on the podcast. I'm Matt. Hi. And I'm Charlie Wilson. So Michael, I'm excited about your ideas about astrocytes and their roles in controlling synaptic circuits. I think everybody's aware that astrocyte processes are present, that synapses everywhere in the brain. But their function in synaptic transmission has been controversial, even mysterious, I think. It's safe to say. And would you start by filling us in on some of the fundamentals of astrocyte function at synapses as we know that to be now? and. Um, and maybe uh, we should start with glutamate synapses in the cortex. Sure, sounds great. So, you know, of course, astrocytes kind of provide a, you know, a homeostatic function for synaptic transmission, doing things like buffering potassium, which is required for action potential firing. And they also serve as a sort of primary intermediary between the neurons and the blood supply. You know, and, and uh, beyond that, they provide sort of crucial roles in glutamate-glutamine cycle, providing precursors for neurotransmitter generation. And sort of um, as the field is progressing, we're uh, studying more about how astroglia physically insulates synapses and how this can augment the strength or um, directionality of synaptic communication. And so beyond that, they also release neuroactive molecules that can uh, tune the fidelity or uh, overall modality of synaptic communication as well, although those things are sort of um, a little less well understood. And you know, we, we uh, are thinking that a lot of these aspects of their ability to regulate synaptic communication are impacted by uh, things like stress and drugs of abuse. So can I mix sort of old and new? So old idea was that they created a fusion barrier for things that are coming in and out of the synapse, and then that they maintain some ionic concentration in there. But the newer addition to that is in addition to maintaining ionic concentration in that space, restricted space, they're controlling lots of other things, even glutamate, for example. So how could an astrocyte control the synaptic glutamate? I mean, transporters, obviously. It sure. takes some up and remove it, but... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, structural reorganization and the extent of the sort of astroglial embrace can physically change the dimensions of the space that, the, uh, that synaptic communication occurs in. And so, you know, by dynamic reorganization of that extent of insulation, you can really sort of concentrate or dilute the neurotransmitters themselves by increasing or decreasing that space. And then another idea is, uh, you know, removing or more appropriate positioning of transporters, kind of like you mentioned, 
But, you know, if we're thinking about transporters and removal of glutamate and regulation of that process, you can also kind of expose more of a pre- or postsynaptic element. So in a way, this sort of dynamic reorganization of that interaction can, can change the profile of uh, non-synaptic uh, neurotransmitter receptor activation, which is another way that they might consequentially tune the efficacy of synaptic communication. So as I understand your idea that astrocyte, the dynamics of astrocyte-neuron interaction has actually to do with the astrocyte changing its location and its how closely it's hugging the synapse. Or, uh, yeah, absolutely. And there, how do there's, we see that? How do we study that? So one way to visualize that that we've been using is is uh, confocal microscopy uh, and looking at membrane targeted uh, fluorophore expression. And so when we can really visualize the uh, sort of peripheral uh, perisynaptic astroglial processes, we can get a little bit more of an understanding of how there might be dynamics in the way that they interact with, say, dendritic spines or the extent to which they insulate different aspects of uh, the dendrite or, or certain aspects of spine necks or spine heads. And so that's one that way that we've done it. And I think that uh, combinatorial visualization of both of these elements, whether it's a live imaging thing or something ex vivo, has allowed us to gain a little more insight into how dynamic that process is and, and uh, what types of phenomenons can impact that relationship. So how dynamic is this process? I guess, you know, there's, um, you know, exposure to drugs of abuse is clearly one thing, but um, what's known maybe from even a developmental st standpoint, you know, how much is actually changing of the astrocyte neuron interaction under normal circumstances, as well as when you're exposed to chronic insults, if you will, of having pharmacological, pharmacological agents bombarding our brain in sort of unnatural ways, if you will. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know so much about development, but sort of an interesting concept. I think uh, Cajal once had hypothesized that, you know, during sleep, astrocytes uh, go and interdigitate the, uh, the actual synaptic cleft, which isn't quite what happens, but they do have sort of dynamic roles that are linked to circadian aspects of biology. But I know some folks have done things like electrical stimulation and LTP type protocols and seen either retraction or additional embrace of astroglial processes at the level of individual dendritic spines. And the general sort of consensus is that the motility and dynamic nature of that process might reflect a similar uh, timescale to what we would think about dendritic spines. And so certainly mediated by similar intracellular processes, you know, actin cycling and all that. But it's, uh, it's thought to be pretty dynamic, you know? And uh, one thing that sort of complicates that a little bit is that the finest processes of astrocytes are really, really small, sort of uh, almost defying conventional light microscopy. So that's been a little bit of a hurdle, but you know, as things like uh, STED and, and STORM and those types of more complicated microscopy have come about, I think we're getting a little bit better idea of, of how dynamic those processes are. But I tend to think about it similar on the time scale and fluidity of, of like a change in a dendritic spine. So I guess there's another factor in there that I guess you didn't bring up today, but I guess, and maybe I'm incorrect of even bringing it up, but the extracellular matrix, you know, oh, yeah. it, you know how can... You know, there's there's obviously some space. There's got to be something that's you know sure. preventing yeah, yeah. from just. It's it's not like these neurons and astrocytes are bouncing around all yeah. over the place. There is some rigidity there, and I guess, what is there? 
So, I mean, you've talked about how drugs of abuse and your talk and your work uh, demonstrate how drugs of abuse can alter, you know, the, the astrocyte neuron interactions and the physical interactions between them. But I guess what's known about the extracellular yeah. matrix and making it sort of labile so that yeah, now yeah. we can have things move around? Or what are the yeah. factors that sort of tie into all of this? That's a great question. So, uh, actually, in another line of investigation that I've been involved with, we look... We looked at uh, nitric oxide interneurons, and we had this sort of um, line of investigation that nitric oxide release from this interneuron population engages activation of these extracellular matrix metalloproteases. And uh, in doing some drug addiction work, we find that this MMP-based degradation of the extracellular matrix is required for the structural plasticity in neurons that's concordant with the uh, physiological plasticity around Q exposure that and both of these things are required for the acute seeking event. And so um, akin to neurons, you know, astrocytes also can express uh, and release the proform of these matrix metalloproteases. And so we certainly don't know yet, you know, uh, exactly how uh, the MMP degradation signals are sent to say, hey, we're going to mobilize an astrocyte versus, you know, we need to make the spine bigger. But, you know, both cell types contain the machinery to sort of replenish those uh, matrix metalloproteases. And, and also, you know, there are mechanisms for uh, glial release of nitric oxide, not through the NOS neurons, but through uh, another uh, nitric oxide producing enzyme. And so there are probably really complicated um, you know, intracellular signaling cascades that are involved in that process. But one thing that we were looking at, uh, at least in in, uh, in my previous work in, in Peter's lab, was uh, integrin receptors. And this is with uh, a friend of mine, postdoc, Cote uh, Garcia Keller. And so she had found that these beta-3 integrin receptors are sort of consequential for receiving signals about um, extracellular matrix turnover. And one thing that we're interested in looking at is understanding the role of that receptor's activation in astroglia, but uh, it could be really interesting. They're likely combined uh, cellular processes, but we, we just don't know yet. But that's absolutely true. You know, when you see a commercial for for some drug that impacts the brain, you see these just naked neurons in a void, and there's no other cells. You know, there's no microglia, there's no astroglia, and there's certainly no proteinaceous network where everything has to kind of just a link up to. Moving around. Yeah, yeah right. Just this. electric octopus in a void. But um, yeah, that's a really good question. And so we think that nitric oxide might be part of that signaling, and there might be some some reactive oxygen species release in astroglia that contribute to that. But certainly, uh, astroglia express genes for pro-MMPs and and are likely uh, involved in that regulation because you're absolutely right. You know the, how dynamic that relationship is requires a certainly a huge amount of turnover of those of those proteinaceous networks. One, one thing that seems to me about astrocytes is that we ought to use a, a little bit different language talking about them than we talk about the neurons, uh, and that's because an astrocyte doesn't either do something or not do something. Every little tiny astrocyte doesn't look like a like the way we're used to them looking. They're called astrocytes because they're supposed to look like stars, but they really look like a ball of cotton. Sure, absolutely. And that every little tiny piece of the astrocyte is interacting with a completely different synapses. And if the whole astrocyte did one thing, then it would be a whole ball of neurons that would be sure. changed by that. But that's not what you think, right? You no. think that it's really synapse-specific, what the astrocyte is doing. So that must be this tiny little place in this ball of cotton is doing one thing, and this tiny little place on the other side of the ball of cotton is doing something completely different. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think that's reflected pretty well in some of the previous uh, work that folks have done looking at calcium signals in astroglia. And so 
as the ability to detect them has gotten kind of better and better, we see that there's you know sort of somatic events, but there are, and maybe cell-wide calcium events, but there are also these tiny little calcium events in micro domains, which might reflect exactly kind of what you're what you're talking about, which is um, you know sort of minute uh, on the order of a few synapse scale level regulation of activity or homeostatic function, and, and uh, it's pretty amazing that they would have such a discrete ability to influence communication in in one region of the cell, and then maybe interacting with a very different synapse in a different way, uh, just a few uh, microns away, you know, and so. Um, Unfortunately, given how sort of nebulous and complicated the structure is, it's been a little bit difficult to resolve um, the calcium events in there and that ramification on that scale. But there's been some really great uh, slice work done with that uh, to kind of get down to that level. But yeah, that's absolutely correct. And so, you know, we're still kind of just beginning to understand how one cell can perform diverse functions and how that relates to calcium events that uh, migrate across multiple cells. So it's certainly fascinating. So one of the things, and it sort of speaks to some of the research you've been doing, you know, when we're talking about the brain, we know that a spiny projection neuron is quite different from a dopamine neuron in the VTA, which is different than a pyramidal neuron in the, uh, you know, in the cortex. And I guess, do you think that we should be thinking of astrocytes in a similar way? Is an astrocyte going to be similar in brain region A as it will in B and C, or should we maybe also be refining, following up on what Charlie was saying of how we talk about astrocytes, we really need to be talking about astrocytes in a brain region specific manner? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even even within a brain region, you know, there's been some really elegant transcriptomic and, and morphological studies that show that astrocytes across cortical layers are, are pretty different. And so, you know, there might even be unique aspects of astrocytes that are present at specific synapses. And certainly across brain regions, there are a lot of differences. So, you know, um, integrating uh, astrocytes into sort of our working model of systems neuroscience is certainly complicated. And it's complicated further by brain region specificity and then maybe even heterogeneity with, within a brain region. And so I think that's definitely an exciting part of, of moving forward. But, you know, really, really um, finding ways to characterize those subtypes and tools to then dissect them by those by those criteria are kind of still just uh, on the forefront of that science. But I think that's absolutely correct, you know. And then potentially in the future, you know, uh, inhibiting just some of the astrocytes or activating just some of a particular subtype based on that heterogeneity might be uh, an inroad to finding out more about how they really uh, impact biology in our so maybe, body. So maybe the best states. way to do that is to actually study them in the context of some real functional thing like say, I don't know, extinction of drug self-administration yeah. <laughs> or something like that. So that, you have been doing that. So why don't you help us uh, do that. Try to integrate the astrocyte into a, into one of these functional sure, uh, sure. brain th circuit things that we're familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we've been exploring some techniques to look at astrocytes by virtue of the synapses that they're present at, and you know it's really similar to how circuit uh, level analyses of neuronal function has been done. And some of the ways that we've been able to do that with are some AV vectors. And so we've been really interested in this. AV1 transsynaptic transduction concept that's used to transduce neurons by virtue of their inputs from other regions. And recently we've been expanding our analysis and usage of these things to look at transferring uh, 
Cree recombinase from neurons in a distal region uh, to neurons in a secondary region, but also to the surrounding astroglia. And so, you know, if, for example, you're interested in understanding how uh, cortical striatal connections regulate something like drug seeking, um, we might begin to dissect the astrocytes present specifically at those synapses and, and kind of better understand how drugs of abuse may be altering them and how, uh, you know, manipulations of these subsets of astroglia. Uh, defined by their anatomical, uh, or rather the synapses that they regulate, uh, this might be a, a way to really understand how they're playing a role in how these circuits change and how they control motivated behavior. So as I understand how that works is you load a presynaptic cell with this virus, the virus goes down to the end of the axon, it's released by the axon and then picked up by postsynaptic neuron, but also by uh, astrocyte that might be living around that synapse as well. And so the, I guess the, the virus gets released by the presynaptic neuron and it diffuses over and finds its way to the astrocyte. And so now the astrocyte is expressing whatever gene you had loaded into that. Absolutely, virus. yeah. And so we can gate the uh, cell that's going to be engaged by this transsynaptic uh, jump by using uh, the virus in the second order location uh, that's gated by you know a, a cell type specific promoter and then kind of being careful to utilize AV serotypes that more preferentially transduce astroglia and so in that case we're using the GFAT promoter uh, or the truncated variant of it with um, an AAV5 serotype and, and we've had good luck with that and some folks have used AAV8 as well but yeah, that's that's exactly what we're doing. You know, we, we've had some success with it, and and some other groups have done it as well. And so, hopefully, this will be a reliable tool for us to really start picking apart uh, circuit level regulation of astroglial biology and, and kind of understanding if if some of this heterogeneity is is uh, is, is going to be crucial for understanding how these cells uh, integrate into functional circuits. So you mentioned like activate and inhibit astrocytes and. Uh, you know, with neurons, it's great. We can use optogenetics. We can sort of mimic action potentials. We can, you know, clamp them down. What, you know, what's the current? How do astrocytes talk, or what is their communication mode? And what tools are there that can either replicate or turn it off, if you will, to activate or inhibit? And sure, what astrocytes do? So um, it seems like people are kind of getting away from optogenetic manipulation of astroglia because it's so super physiological, you know. And then, uh, you know, dread receptors are, are common tools and, and, and sort of engaging GQ signaling in astrocytes is a fine way to activate them by proxy. Uh, you know, the only thing that's sort of um, uh, a limitation in that sense is we really don't know what the consequence as far as the uh, structural reorganization or the neurochemicals that the astrocytes are releasing in response to that activation. It's sort of just a bulk activation, but at least GQ activation is a little bit more physiologically relevant than uh, sort of an optogenetic manipulation. And then as far as inhibition goes, you know, uh, Balcock from, from UCLA has done some really great stuff with an outward calcium pump. And so sort of a proxy for the activation of astroglia is almost akin to what they would have sort of like a surrogate action potential, not quite, but, but a sort of reasonable facsimile, is the oscillation of internal calcium. And so Ball has, has uh, engineered an astroglia-specific expression of an outward calcium pump, basically a constitutive vector that you can use to inhibit internal calcium uh, oscillation. And that, that's kind of where uh, what we're exploring lately. And there's been a couple other tools to optogenetically activate uh, GQ signaling in astroglia or, or inhibit it. And so those things are kind of on the forefront now. And, and um, 
we're hoping to use these things potentially in combination with our uh, circuit-specific transduction of astroglia to really kind of pick apart uh, what, what role they're playing. So one of the other things I think is fascinating about astrocytes is they've got gap junctions. And how do they sort of communicate with one another relative, you know, could you have sort of a, uh, an effect on one astrocyte here that's getting, let's say, uh, a, not a synapse, sorry, you're getting input from, input from a specific, you know, neuronal pathway. And then could that sort of diffuse in a way through a network of astrocytes in a way? And so does this sort of like blow up our sort of simple model, not that our model of the brain is simple, but it adds sort of almost a, a lateral communication that could sure. uh, happen within sort of a, a brain region so that astrocytes could receive a signal from one astrocyte and it could be communicated to other astrocytes, which would then impact other neurons that were not directly receiving the neuronal input. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the sort of idea about calcium oscillation in astrocytes many years ago, this uh, concept you probably heard, it's like calcium wave, you know, the increase in internal calcium in an astroglia can sort of spread through adjacent cells. And one way that that can happen is through uh, transfer of second messengers, like it three through gap junctions, you know, and uh, the sort of propagation of that signal. And it's super fascinating, you know, astroglia are connected in sort of like a syncytia or a web. But there seem to be sort of organizations, structural or functional organizations within that syncytia that we don't really, at least in the context of drug addiction, understand the relevance of. And so that's absolutely true, you know. And more recent studies have shown that, you know, when you when you optogenetically activate uh, inputs to a particular region, you certainly get activation of astrocytes along that pattern of innervation, but it spreads outward and beyond. And so um, through this type of uh, cytoplasmic continuity or intracellular connection, there might be some ability for astrocytes to sort of trans transfer information across circuits. And, you know, to what extent that occurs during drug addiction or its functional relevance, I don't think we really know yet. but. That's exactly sort of the exciting uh, avenues of, the, of this kind of biology that we're trying to uh, uncover. So it seems like the perfect thing for you because you know how to do that. You know how to image the calcium and astrocytes in vivo while the animal is doing something. So um, can we expect to see calcium oscillations in astrocytes in the reasonable future? Sure. I, I, um, we're, we're doing some really great work with my collaborator, Jim Otis, and we're getting some really fantastic uh, astrocyte calcium signals in vivo with some orthogonal tracking with some uh, Greenland's implantation studies. And we're really hoping to understand how astrocyte activity patterns evolve during uh, you know, a self-administration and an eventual relapse event. And hopefully that will help us understand how they shape neuronal biology. And uh, you know, we're, we're certainly doing those types of of studies currently and uh, just getting better at tracking individual astrocytes over repeated recording sessions and things like that will hopefully give us that kind of information. And so um, I, I'd love to be a part of or at least be there when we when we functionally sort of integrate astroglial action into this sort of engram hypothesis and, and basically understand how this uh, ability for these uh, interconnected cells to modulate synapses shapes and forms the ensembles that become responsible for complicated behaviors like, like drug seeking and, and things like that. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot of hypotheses about how astroglia can adjust the the gain of neuronal function or, or impact recruitment into into particular uh, neuronal ensembles, and I think that that's going to be that's going to be where we're going. And so, another thing that we're hopeful to do in the future is simultaneously record astrocyte and neuron activity. And I think once we can orthogonally track them and see both members of the party, so to speak, 
we might gain more understanding of, of how the activity of, of one cell influences another. So could you talk about the sort of general theory of the fact that I think for a long period of time, uh, at least from a neuroscience perspective, people think of astrocytes, well, they're following the lead. They're, they're behind what sure. the neurons are doing. And I guess, is there any evidence, like, are they always following the lead? Or maybe are they receiving input at the same time? Or maybe they're receiving potentially distinct input that might be modulating the neurons. So, right. you know, in the, this two-partner dance, is one leading, is one lagging, or is it all possibilities? That's a great question. You know, I think uh, we'll have to devise sort of specific experimentation to understand, you know, the cognate response of reacting to local neuron activity, you know, and sort of providing energy to the neurons so they can continue to fire and doing the buffering that's required so that neurons, you know, present where the astrocytes themselves are sitting can function. And then also the contribution of incoming neurotransmitter. And so some of the things that we're thinking about doing is um, using sort of similar genetic indicators, but for things like uh, glutamate. So, you know, if we load up our astrocytes with a uh, glue sniffer instead of a, a calcium indicator, we might be able to visualize more of the incoming information and kind of compare that to what we see with a genetic indicator study and, and basically kind of parse apart to what extent the incoming neurotransmitters are engaging activation of the astroglia and to what extent they're responding to local neuron activity. And another uh, experiment we've kind of thought about doing to try and parse that apart is just, you know, holding down neurons with something like DRED or optogenetics and seeing how that disrupts these patterns of astroglial action that we've been observing with the genetic indicators to really get at that question. I suspect that it's both, but I, I, I would like to believe that a lot of it is driven by the input because, uh, you know, it, it seems to be an attractive hypothesis that, you know, these incoming signals from afferents are engaging in an activity of calcium signaling that drives a release of a neurochemical in astroglia, and, that, and that's helping to shape ensemble formation. And so we certainly have to test that hypothesis pretty rigorously, but um, that's kind of what we, what we think is going on. But, I, you know, it's, it seems very likely that a, a, a portion of the astroglial calcium response is responding to local neuron activity and doing things like uh, lactate shuttling and glutamate glutamine cycle and things like that and so you know to what extent it's comprised of either is is, is sort of still up in the air and and you know maybe that's something too that could be impacted by things like disease states or, or drug exposure so do you think that that the drug experiments are good ones for finding ensembles in the usual way of thinking about ensembles animal learns some usually an avoidance task or something like that, and then we find the neurons that are active during that time, and then we activate them again, and we see the animal avoids something. Sure. So what's the corresponding experiment for studying ensembles? And sure, sure. So you can, um, you can certainly trap neurons during something like a acute-seeking event, and then try and inhibit or reactivate them and, and sort of elicit the same behavior. But for astroglia, we're, we're certainly not at the level of targeted recombination of active populations. Uh, we could certainly make those viruses, but uh, as it stands, I'm not 100% sure that FOSS is as clear an indication of activity, and so maybe we're not quite there. But um, you know, we can certainly look at clustering algorithms and see how groups of neurons change their activity, and then see how well those changes can predict future events. And so, what I think 
would be a great thing to do is uh, some, some unbiased clustering and some decoding, basically finding how neuron activity patterns are shaped and how they correlate with the relapse event, and then looking at astroglia activity patterns, whether increases or decreases, that seem to coincide with that, and asking some questions about are they spatially close to those neurons, or, or maybe they're actually regulating the dendrites of those neurons and they're distal. But I think once we kind of begin to collect those types of simultaneous pieces of, of information, we might get sort of more of a glimpse into how they participate in, in ensemble formation and, and try to be able to fit them into the sort of engram uh, uh, hypothesis. So, uh, and the, you have to help me with the, with the drug taking task because I'm wondering what is the ensemble coding? It's, in, it's encoding that the Q is connected to availability of sure of drug, drug yeah and and I, I'm sure it's co uh, coding some of the connection between the Q and drug availability but I think it probably varies you know with with um, the brain region you're studying you know it could be quite different what precise aspects of the ensemble is encoding when you're talking about the prelimbic cortex versus the nucleus accumbens, you know? You'd think maybe ensembles of the nucleus accumbens are more directly connected to things like motivated action, and maybe the prelimbic cortex is more about cue recognition and, and sort of conceptually understanding that, um, you know, this, this sound means drug is available, and, and so maybe things like updating a contingency are more localized to the nucleus accumbens, but um, that's a great question, honestly. You know, I'm, I'm not sure 100%. It's a bit anthropomorphic, but it's, it's, um, it's kind of where we're at in trying to understand uh, how these changes in groups of neuronal activity are driving the behavior. So maybe instead of like actually the ensemble of the whole astrocyte, I mean, what you're talking about is that, you know, they've got all of these processes going out there and these processes might have very localized effects. The ensembles we might see in, if there are these sort of ensembles and astrocytes, might not necessarily be on a cell-by-cell -cell basis, but might actually be on a process-by-process -process basis. And I guess, are you able to get that sort of resolution now or are it, what's sort of the limits of being able to, to and the challenges associated with, you know, looking at astrocytes in vivo with, you know, two photon grid, yeah. you know, grid approaches versus what we do with neurons. Like, is sure. it comparable or are there other sort of challenges sure. you have to think about given how different they are? Yeah, I think there, there's definitely a little bit of a hit you take to resolution in the sort of current uh, Grinland stuff that we have going. We can certainly discern somas versus, uh, you know, more peripheral processes, but, you know, um, if you're asking me if I wish we had higher magnification, the answer is yes, you know. And so I'm not sure we'll, we'll quite be able to discern subcellular activity patterns, but hopefully what we will be able to see is, you know, generation of activity in, in individual astroglia and then the likelihood of sort of recruiting another node in this incision. And I think that that's completely possible. And those types of studies have certainly been done. You know, Karen Postganzer has done some really elegant stuff in SLICE. And, you know, with a little bit higher resolution, you can totally look at, you know, the speed or the directionality of calcium events and how different uh, uh, manipulations of the system can augment those things. But um, right now, I think we're kind of looking at really just tracking cells over time and, and uh, potentially looking at somatic versus non-somatic events. But so far in our current preparation, that's about the level of resolution we've got. Just what we're looking forward to, the next iteration of this kind of work and uh, high resolution for seeing these tiny places in the puffball of Ashes. <laughs> so thank you very much, Michael Scott. Absolutely, thank you for having me. And Matt? It's always a pleasure. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.